0: Thank you so much, Carol Ann and, and worship team. Uh, I, I'm, I'm so blessed to, to be surrounded by musicians and, and uh, worship leaders who uh, have a deep and abiding walk in faith with our Lord. I, I recently was contacted by another church uh, uh, about our size uh, in the state who was desperate for a worship leader because their guy was going to be gone on a Sunday. And they had no one to take his place, and and, and I, I was just I was reflecting on that and just thinking how blessed we are. Last week, Mark McMillan, who was playing the guitar, led us in worship, and and we're going to be losing him. They're they're going to be leaving, um, moving uh, to the south of the cities, but um, south part of the metro. But we've been so blessed to have their fellowship and and his leadership, and then Carol Ann this morning, and. We've enjoyed Wayne Welsh in the past and Matt Higgins and, and Dave Tolberg and, and and others and we're just so blessed and I, and I just so appreciate what you brought uh, to us this morning, Carol Ann. Thank you so much with all my heart. It's, it, it's a treat for me to be able to sit back and just worship and um, not have a worry in the world except for what I have to say next. <laughs> this morning we're going to be studying Psalm 95 and I want to take some time to unpack that. Uh, but uh, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 95. We're just going to I'm going to read through that with you as you follow along. Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a is a call to worship. I, I think it's a it's a model for both public and private worship. Uh, it's a pattern. It's a template for structuring our worship that's both timeless and, and practical, both both public and and private. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways." so i declared an oath on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest father we uh, come before you this morning to receive your word and i pray that 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 as i speak this morning that you would open the hearts and minds of your people to your truth and if there is any error uh or anything that is unhelpful in in what i say this morning i just pray that that your people would tune it out and that it it would but, but the things that are helpful and, 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 and true and that you want us to hear, Lord, I just pray that those things would impact our hearts and lives, that we would, as the psalm says, that we would open our hearts and our minds to hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, psalm 95 starts out with verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. It's a call to worship. Since the 4th century, Psalm 95 has been known amongst Christians as the Venite, which means come. The community, the the people of God are summoned to come together for the purpose of celebration. When we as Americans celebrate the Fourth of July, we we celebrate our great victory over England in our Revolutionary War that, that won our independence. We celebrate our rebellion against England's rule. We celebrate our great victory, the the underdog against all the odds victory, our our David against Goliath victory over the tyrannical English. We celebrate our prowess, our sacrifice, our ingenuity, our long-suffering. We celebrate our might and our strength. We celebrate the rightness of our cause. The 4th of July is all about patting ourselves on the back in a way and reminding ourselves and everyone just how great we are. But the purpose of the joyous occasion the psalmist is proclaiming is not a celebration of independence, but a celebration of dependence. The occasion occasion is not a 4th of July Independence Day parade, but rather a celebration of Israel's dependence on Almighty God who is anything but a tyrannical ruler. It was not Israel's great prowess, sacrifice, ingenuity, or long-suffering that delivered them from their many enemies. It was God. As Psalm 20 reminds us, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The reference to God as, as the rock of our salvation in verse 1 may be a reference to the numerous times that, that God had delivered Israel in the past over and over and over again. It's also possible that the psalm was written in celebration of a specific victory. Perhaps the time the, the, the great mass of Assyrian army that had swept through all, all the ancient Near East was at the, the gates of Jerusalem and had been defeated and 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 fled and it was true a great story of god's miraculous intervention maybe the psalm was written in celebration of that event either way the psalmist is acknowledging that god is israel's great protector and so it is with that context and attitude that the psalmist inspired by the holy spirit invites us to come and worship as 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 God's people come to worship, there's a progression in the in the call to worship in Psalm 95 that's that's timeless. It was written about 3,000 years ago, and it's and it's practical. It still affected how we ordered our worship this morning, and our planning. Week after week, our worship service is is patterned more or less. Some weeks more than others. Some weeks more successfully than others after the pattern laid out for us it's right here in psalm 95 the psalm the psalm 95 worship pattern starts out with exuberant praise look at some of the phrases come let us sing and extol him with music and song its worship is filled it starts off with 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 music and singing singing and and music has has been a time honored tradition both in the jewish tradition and then from day one in, in uh, the Christian faith. If you'll recall, just before Jesus uh, went to the cross, as He finished the, uh, uh, the Last Supper, they sang a hymn, Scripture tells us. Come, let us sing for joy. It's celebratory. It's a holy party. Let us shout. It's loud to the rock of our salvation. It's God-focused and Christ-centered. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving. It's filled with thanksgiving. It, it, It is said that ingratitude is the fruit of pride. Because pride says, I don't need you. I'm great. I'm where it's at. I'm cool. I don't need you. I don't need God. I could care less about you. I'm not grateful for anything because all I need is me. Ingratitude is the antithesis of worship. And it's the fruit of pride. And so the psalmist says, Come, let us come before him with thanksgiving because we are acknowledging that we are not sufficient in ourselves. We are not the end of all. That we are weak and we are vulnerable and we need our Creator God. Praise and celebration is designed to focus on God instead of ourselves. Praise and celebration is designed to help us set aside the distractions of life, our sorrows, our cares, our anxieties and fears. And I know for a fact that in a crowd this size this morning, there is at least one person here that did not want to come this morning. And you just kind of did it out of force of habit or duty or maybe somebody dragged you along And it's when you feel that way, that that, those are probably the times we need to be here the most. Praise and celebration is designed to help us get rid of our inhibitions. How many of you this morning had a hard time bringing uh, your hands together or raising your hands and you find yourself, even as adults, you know, we talk about teenagers being uh, uh, peer pressured and peer conscious. You know, I, quite frankly, I, I don't find that unique to teenagers. We're all that way. And, and praise, celebratory praise and worship helps us, hopefully, to uh, lay aside our inhibitions. Praise and worship is, is designed to encourage us as well as we worship and praise God. Praise and celebration is designed to help us cut loose and let off steam. I was a freshman my first year of college. And uh, I I attended Michigan State University, and uh, what a what a great time that was. We'd go to the football stadium, and uh, the the school colors were green and white. And so inevitably, sooner or later, half of the stadium, which was always packed, standing room only, um, 25 to 30,000 people on one side of the stadium inevitably would go, go green. There's a lot of 30,000 voices. It was and then you just hear it you could be at the 2 miles away and you'd hear it and then the other side of the stadium would go go white and then it back and forth go green go white go green and the whole the the whole purpose of that was to so intimidate the other team that they would just go to the locker room and not even play the game but it was really cool and um a lot just a lot of fun and I often reflected back on that experience wishing that Christians could get so excited about Jesus. And then came the Promise Keeper events. How many of you guys went to a Promise Keeper event at at some point? Stadiums filled with 50,000 to 60,000 guys. I, I went to three specifically, Boulder, Colorado, RFK Stadium near Washington, D.C., and Three Rivers Stadium uh, in Pittsburgh. And I'll never forget the first time, 25,000 guys without cue, without any direction, all of a sudden on one side of the stadium at RFK. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? 25,000 guys, testosterone in the air. Not about to be outdone. We love Jesus! Yes, we do! We love Jesus! How about you? 25,000 guys. We love Jesus! Yes, we do! We love Jesus! How about you? back and forth and back and forth and I'm crying like a baby the whole time I never got it out cuz I my dream had come true I couldn't believe it wow it was a taste of heaven it was Psalm 95 it's not sacrilegious to clap our hands it's not sacrilegious to shout God invites us to do it it's biblical It's good. Psalm 95 goes on to verse 3. Then we take the progression in verse 3. The progression of worship takes a turn. Because as great as that was, and as much fun as that was, even at promise keepers, you can only hoop and holler for so long. And you start to run out of energy. And the older you get, the quicker that happens. It lasts, I, I only need it for about a minute now. The psalm moves from praise and celebration to focusing on God's greatness. And when this psalm was written, we need to understand that the, the people lived, who lived amongst the Israelites and in surrounding nations worshipped many gods. There were greater gods and there were lesser gods. There were gods everywhere. Some gods had entire nations in their charge, like the Philistines' worship of Dagon. Other gods only had cities. Some gods were a little bit bigger than others, so they had bigger cities, and other gods weren't quite as big, so they had little towns and villages. But every, where there were people, there, was, there were gods doing something. Some gods lived on the mountain peaks, and that was their jurisdiction. So if you're going to go mountain climbing, you better make sure you, you, things are good with that god. Other gods lived in the valleys. Some gods ruled the seas, like Neptune of Roman and Greek mythology. Other gods ruled on the dry land... So as long as you're in the sea, if you were bad with the land god, you didn't have to worry about him. Some gods dwelt in forests and others lived in the desert or the open plains. Some gods were responsible for the seasons of the year. Others tended the stars by night and the sun by day. Some gods ruled over the living and some gods ruled over the dead. And it just went on and on and on. And into this chaotic milieu, this this pantheon of posers, the psalmist cuts the proverbial Gordian knot and in one broad stroke boldly proclaims in Psalm 95, verse 3, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. See, this had meaning to them. They understood this. In His hands are the depths of the earth. God is not limited to only the dry land or the valley. He holds the earth in His hand. And the mountain peaks belong to Him. He's not just limited to the mountain peak like that so-called God. He holds the whole mountain in His hand. The sea is His. He's not just limited to the sea. He holds the whole sea in His hand. He holds the whole world in His hand for He made it and His hands formed the dry land. He holds it all in His hand. Appreciation can be shown to some Praise can even be shown to others, but worship belongs to God only, James Montgomery Boyce writes. John Stott writes, not until we grasp who the Lord is are we inwardly moved to worship Him. We focus on God's greatness by the songs we sing, the reading of Scripture and life stories that, that give testimony to how we see God at work in our lives each week. This morning, Carol Ann selected several songs that proclaimed God's greatness. We sang, God is great. God is great, and His praise fills the earth, fills the heavens, and Your name will be praised through all the world. Holy is the Lord, the whole earth sings. And then she went on to, You are good. Lord, You are good, and Your mercy endures forever. We worship You. Hallelujah. 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 Praise Adonai, who is like Him, the Lion and the Lamb, seated on the throne. Mountains bow down; every ocean roars. the Lord of hosts, as we focused on God's greatness and praised and worshipped Him. And then Carol Ann read from, uh, had the team read from Isaiah forty, twenty six to thirty one. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name, because of His great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Right about then, after hearing those amazing words about our awesome God, our hearts should be bursting with a sense of wonder and reverence. I think that's where we struggle. As Tom Crider writes in his book, Becoming a True Worshipper, here's a regrettable fact. In our society, once we've done something once or twice, it becomes old hat to us. Our usual reaction today to practically anything in life is, been there, done that. We're always looking for a product that is new and improved. Last year's model is not good enough for us. Too often we're bored unless we have something brand new with the latest bells and whistles. And he goes on to say that our worship can end up the same way. We get comfortable with the way we do things around here, and in the process, easily lose that sense of awe and reverence in the presence of God. Isaiah 40? Oh, I've heard that one before. I know that one. Been there, done that. And we find ourselves rehearsing our plans for the afternoon. Ever been there? Ever done that? But think about what Isaiah 40 is saying. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one. And calls them each by name. Because of His great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Look at these facts about our universe. Let's put this in perspective. Our galaxy... Did you know it's 100,000 light years in diameter? For those of you that are really astute, that is 587,000 trillion miles. Boy, you are going to impress your friends this weekend. There are estimated just in our galaxy to be 100 billion stars, of which our sun is just one. Now, astronomers estimate that there are about one million or more galaxies. That's trillions of stars. Trillions of stars. We toss that, a wor- that word around as if we knew what it really meant. Have you ever counted to a trillion? Have you? I haven't. We're going to try something this morning. We're going to try to count to a trillion. If I had a metronome, I would set it on 60, one beat per second. And then we would start counting. But So we'll just have to approximate what one beat per second is. And so all together, on the count of three, we'll start counting... Um. together okay so are you ready and i'll kind of direct you like this right one, two, three. One, two, three, four, five. just a minute just a minute just a minute that's going to take too long i'm going to help you out we're going to jump ahead okay we're going to jump to one million five hundred thousand five hundred and twenty three and let's take it from there okay one million five hundred five thousand five hundred twenty three one million five hundred thousand five hundred and twenty four one million five hundred thousand five hundred twenty five one million five hundred twenty you're not with me you see my point maybe you were making progress, but I can't do it. We immediately fell behind, and i'll tell you what at least we tried but for the sake of uh, conversation let's say we could do it let's say we could succeed in counting to a trillion how long do you think it would take us to do that because I have to wrap it up here pretty quick how long do you think it would take you to count to a trillion any guesses don't be shy huh a trillion seconds (laughs) that's good that's good wise guy. Okay. (laughs) Alright, anybody else? How long? Give me a guess. Okay, I see that hand over there. An hour. Good guess. Did somebody say a year? Not long enough. Try again. Your whole life. We're going to put the answer on the screen right now. one second if you lived a hundred years a hundred lifetimes wouldn't get you there that's how great our God is trillions of stars and what does the scripture tell us he's numbered them all and he's named them all. everyone has a name I can't even remember all of your names. Carol and I went out to dinner with Bev and Olin Phillips two weeks ago. And we were at Culver's and the food came and I offered to pray. So I said, Dear Lord, thank you for this food and thank you for our time with with Bev and And I knew I was, I was had. And so I just blurted out, Bob. <laughs> and that was the end of that prayer. <laughs> and we've been teasing each other about that one ever since. Oh, shoot. I couldn't even get his name right. Not only does our great God number and name the stars, all of which He created, He knows your name. And He has counted every hair on your head. And that's easier for some than others. But Our view of God is so small. But when we begin to grasp His greatness, our only reaction is awe. And I want to worship a God. And there can be only one reaction when we really understand who God is. Begin to even a piece of who God is. And that's reverence and intimacy. Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. You see the progression we've started off with? Excitement and celebratory praise and worship and we've gradually moved to reverence and awe and intimacy. The Hebrew word for bow is prostate, prostrate. Prostrate oneself flat. I knew I was going to do that. Prostrate oneself flat. Oh Lord, keep us focused, Lord. Flat on your face. Flat on the ground. And while we don't quite achieve that on Sunday morning, the point is deep reverence, deep reverence reverence and intimacy, humility before our God. That is what the psalmist is saying. God is not impersonal, distant, uncaring, and far removed. On the contrary, he's our shepherd and we are his people. We matter to him and he desires to care for us. And when you think how great he is, and that he cares about me. It just overwhelms me. We enjoy the intimacy of a personal interaction with our Creator God who loves us, cares about us, and cares for us. And so this morning, as we worshiped, we responded to the call to worship, entered God's presence as a congregation with joyful celebration. We focused on God's greatness. We moved from praise and celebration to reverence and intimacy. And after Carol Ann and the team read Isaiah 40, we sang, He Knows My Name. And it's a song with a beautiful melody that's both reverent and wonderfully intimate. And it was only then that we brought our requests before God as in our pastoral prayer. I believe that Psalm 95 is not merely an outline for our Sunday worship services, however, but just as importantly, Psalm 95 is an outline for practicing God's presence in our lives every day of the week. When we're walking with God daily, seeking to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, Sunday worship is just a highlight in a process. On one hand, Sunday worship is the encouragement and refueling that we need after a a week of life in the trenches because life's hard. On the other hand, it's the instruction and strengthening that we need to do the battle for yet another week to come. For the man or the woman whose heart is far from God, Sunday worship is an interruption. It's boring and it's irrelevant. What a tragedy. Listen to how the psalm ends. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah and as you did that day at Massa in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation and I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Massa and Meribah are symbols of hard-heartedness. The fact is that Numbers 14 reveals to us that on t- ten separate occasions three million people, that's how many people it's estimated wandered in the desert. Three million left Egypt and wandered in the desert. For, on ten occasion, uh, defining moments, on, on ten different defining moments, three million people as one rose up to complain and grumble and and basically reject their God. And finally God had had enough and he said okay you're going to wa- all three million of you are going to wander in the desert now for 40 years after those 10 times uh, represented by Massa and Meribah you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years and not one of you aged 20 and above will live to see the promised land not one of you will, your children will enter the promised land until all of you are dead and buried in this desert because they hardened their hearts And so the psalmist offers these words as as an exhortation for us to work at keeping our hearts soft and tender to the things of the Lord and a warning to learn from the example of the Israelites and their hardness of heart so that we don't repeat that same mistake in our lives. But life is hard and it is faced with many challenges and it's so easy to lose sight of God's greatness and to fret and worry and fear. And no one is better at that than me. This morning I want to close by reading... I was going to try to just paraphrase this, but this is so good and so powerfully written that I'm just going to read it to you uh, as I close my time and then Carol Ann and the team will come back up. Um, But this is in a book that I've been reading during my quiet time during the last month by Mark Buchanan called The Rest of God. And he has a a powerful insight about practicing the sovereignty of God in our lives, the bigness of God in our lives. And what he has to say this morning is very practical and very appropriate and a very encouraging way to end as we apply this, this passage to our lives in the week to come. Peter, who is boastful and bullheaded, given to brags and bully rags, he promised great feats committed great blunders and then slunk away in defeat. He crowed with cocky self-admiration. Isn't that good? He crowed with cocky self-admiration. This guy's good. And then, hearing the cock crow, wept with shameful humiliation. But eventually he got it right, and his secret as far as he had one was that he had learned to practice the sovereignty of God. Acts 3-4, to four, for instance. Peter and John perform a miracle in Jerusalem, and then Peter seizes the opportunity to preach one of his shoot-from-the-hip-come-to-Jesus sermons. This lands them in trouble with the law. The Jewish high council known as the Sanhedrin. Peter seizes that opportunity to preach at them. To preach at them. They are astonished at his courage, he is one who speaks with authority. But they order him and John to shut up about Jesus anyway, to, know, to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Imagine that. A rather comprehensive prohibition. They threaten Peter and John with dire consequences if they persist. The Peter we knew before would have folded long before this point. He would have wormed his way out, found some escape hatch, and slipped through it. Peter we meet now is emboldened by each fresh challenge the Sanhedrin note this when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus confidence in ourselves our educations our pedigrees and our abilities is pathetic but confidence in Jesus Christ which comes only by walking with him is astonishing Peter has quit the one and perfected the other it's what happens next after the Sanhedrin released John and Peter that gives us the clearest account of how Peter replenishes his Christ confidence on their release Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them when they heard this imagine Peter and John come in here and they're going to tell you right now and you're hearing this for the first time they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sound familiar? You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth make their, take their stand and the rulers gather to, together against the Lord and against His anointed one. A quote from Psalm 2. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The prayer ends with the troubles these men face. But it doesn't begin that way. This is what I want us to remember. It begins with this. Sovereign Lord. And it moves from there into naming and recounting the height and depth and weight of his sovereignty. God made all, rules all, and overrules all that stands in his way. These men practice the sovereignty of God. They establish clear and solid the truth of God's kingship. They rehearse the reality of God's overarching, undergirding might. And as they grow, God starts to look bigger. And only then as a kind of addendum or footnote do they pray about the problem they have. Oh By the way, God, we had some trouble today, some blowhards making empty threats. Could you clear it up? God then sends a fresh infusion of the Spirit. They grow some more. God sends His Spirit, but not to keep the disciples safe, but to make them more dangerous. (laughs) oh, they're they're hurting us they're threatening us (laughs) no they prayed to be more dangerous to go on and do it even more boldly these were men these were real men these were real women Are you in the midst of a situation as you pray, you find yourself putting the problem first? If so, you're starting where you should end. You're rehearsing the problem and you're making the problem seem bigger than it is when what you need to do is rehearse God's greatness and bigness. Then the problem shrinks to its right portions and it becomes, oh, by the way, as a Sabbath liturgy, I recommend practicing the sovereignty of God. Today when you pray, start with God. Survey what He has made. Recite what He has done. Proclaim who He is. And after you've been with Jesus long enough and feel your courage brimming, He looks bigger. And see if there's still... Oh, oh yeah, by the way, I had this little thing that I thought I'd mention. That's the God I serve. It's the God we all serve. Let's continue to worship. Father, you are great. And we worship you with all our hearts this morning. Forgive us for making you so small. In Jesus' name, amen.